Hey, welcome to Genre Exposure, a film podcast. Join us as we explore the wide world of cinema, broadening our horizons one movie at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Dustin, and as usual, I'm here with Michael. Hey, guys. And Jason. Hello. What's up, guys? How you doing? Pretty good, man. Doing well. I've nailed that intro. I got that down. Yeah. You're perfect now. Very confident. What are we, like five episodes in now? I got that (laughs) intro down. Thereabouts. I'm proud of you. Thanks, man. Thanks. Awesome. Well, listen, right off the top, I need to have a disclaimer on this episode before Uh we get into things. Mm -hmm. So today we are talking about Inflatable Sex Doll of the Wastelands, directed by Atsushi Yamatoya. Yes. And this falls in a genre called pink films. And so the thing with pink films is they deal with a lot of sexual content. But not like fully pornographic sexual content. In the West, you would think of this as stuff like maybe erotic thrillers, or some people might go so far as to say it's like softcore. I wouldn't even go that far. But I wouldn't go that far, and there's a lot more going on in them. However, because of that content, and because a lot of the films, when you discuss them, they'll deal with themes of like rape, misogyny, things like that. For some people, that's going to be a tough area to navigate through. Of course. Mm -hmm. And so I know with us, we are kind of open to anything and kind of just seek it, see what's there, talk about it, discuss it. Everyone is different. So it's really a thing of know your comfort zone, know what you care about. If something like rape is a tough issue for you to deal with, it's not. It should be a tough issue for everyone to deal with, but if it's not something that you feel like you can safely... Right, right. Um, listen to this podcast without feeling upset or put you in a negative place, but that's the last thing that we want to do. So. Right, mm, exactly. Right. And when you're exploring genre cinema, you're going to come across stuff that's disturbing and horrible, and, I mean, it's it's like the old Last House on the Left movie trailer. Keep telling yourself it's only a movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's only a movie. Um, these, these things do happen in real life, which is awful, and, of course, we don't endorse that, but we like to explore this stuff in the confines of cinema right and you know last house on the left and i spit on your grave those are kind of films i thought about preparing for this i know a lot of people like they cannot watch those they just like that's off limits for them even this film though so tame even compared to those though Mm -hmm. so so um it is a genre that not many people will know about so i've prepared a little bit for us to kind of get into it figure out what they're about talk about this film and i hope i'll do it justice and if you're ready to go with that Proceed with the episode. We'll see, Dustin. I if mean, not, we can see you next episode. There's only 40 pages of notes next to you, so we'll see. <laughs> I've gone a little crazy. <laughs> if you can do it justice. <laughs> All right, but first, as usual, let's warm up with what we've been watching recently. Cool. I always skip out and say I don't want to go first, but I can go first this time. Oh, awesome. All right. Is and it I'm, one you're excited about? You can't wait to talk about this movie. It was so good, right? Nope. Oh. <laughs> nope, but we're not going to have a rehash of the last time where I spent like 20 minutes shitting on Veronica. Well, Veronica, Veronica broke you, though. If so. Veronica broke me, I fell apart in Veronica. It's a special movie. Um, okay, so I watched... Oh, crap. Um, you don't you. even know what you watched. No, as I've said before, I'm the unprepared jackass on this podcast. I watched a film that is streaming on Shudder. It was a um, Shudder exclusive, but I actually read about it and saw the poster before Shudder picked it up. Um, but it was a uh, horror western called The Pale Door. Ooh, I want to see that. Yeah, it's on my queue. All right. Well, let me get into that a little bit. Maybe I don't want to see it. <laughs> so it's 2020 mm-hmm. uh, release, hour 36 minutes, um, directed by Aaron B. Koontz. So the basic premise of this film is you have your kind of outlaw gang that is 
you know, robbing, doing jobs, you know, picking up some money and stuff. Well, they have a heist kind of go wrong, and the they thought there was going to be gold that they were getting, but it turns out they were getting a young girl who was locked in a trunk okay, mm. from this heavily guarded train. Um, that girl turns out to be a witch Ooh. and leads the gang back to her coven in this town, and it's kind of a... I think it all predates back to like Salem Witch Trial kind mm-hmm. of stuff as they normally do. However, that's kind of where the good stuff really stops. That's yeah, a cool. It's a cool premise. Awesome premise. And I don't know if have you guys seen the poster? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a, a great poster. poster. The poster is awesome. Yeah. It's very 70s looking. Um and it it tells you like it's pre- presented by Joe R. Lansdale, writer of Bubba Hotep and Cold in July. Yeah, he's a great writer. So, here's the problem with this movie though. It starts off pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has really good tone. I feel for... The, it starts off as two of the main characters when they're kids. And some people are coming to their house and you don't know why, but they're trying to kill their family. It looks good. You know, good pacing. But once we leave that scene and they're grown up now, it kind of falls apart. Hmm. Like, this movie is trying to be two things in a genre. Horror and Western. And I don't think there's a lot of good horror westerns. Like, I can think of two off the top of my head that are great, like Bone Tomahawk and um, The Burrowers. Mm, great Love movies, both yeah. of those. Yeah. So those are two great horror westerns, but there's not a lot that really does horror and western. Right. And that kind of is the problem here. It doesn't do either genre that well. Hmm, it's disappointing. The I think probably the biggest hang-up for me was it looked like set pieces looked like they were like cheap lifetime leftover set pieces mm. uh, from some, you know, Hallmark lifetime Western movie or something. The costumes felt that way too. They were, everybody was pristinely clean. It's hard to get historical stuff right if you don't have a big budget. Yeah. Right, right. So what I will say this movie did well though, um, it does have some cool actors in it. Um, some of them got no direction and you can tell like, <laughs> And when I looked up their credits, a lot of these guys are like bit players in um, like detective shows, mm-hmm. like procedural dramas that mm. come on. So a lot of them are bit players, and it looks like they've been in like three episodes of a certain show. They'll pop up in another one on another network. Right. And they're kind of, some of the guys are like really doing their hard. Like, <laughs> so they seem out of place, like too modern or something. Yeah, yeah. They don't, it's, it doesn't feel authentic. Mm-hmm. So I'll let that slide. That's fine. Um, but once we do get to the coven, there's some pretty cool makeup. Yeah. Uh, cause I didn't expect practical makeup witches Not nice. in the kind of roll doll style. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like demony witches. Ooh. So it's pretty cool. It's obvious budgets pretty low from watching it, but I found myself trying to like retrain my mind and think, was it really that bad or is it just bad compared to the other horror westerns that we have that are good. Yeah, those are high watermarks. It's hard so I kind of like sat on this one a little bit and thought, okay, I didn't dislike it as much as I did when I initially watched it. Because if I put it in the realm of, okay, well, yeah, it's not The Burrowers. It's not Bone Tomahawk. But it's not terrible. <laughs> have you seen... Uh... <laughs> that should be on the poster. That should be yeah. the tagline. It's not bad. It's not bad. Um, have you seen, I think it's called Dead Birds? 
It's another horror western. Oh, I read about that one. I've never but seen, I've not that seen one. it. Oh. That one's a little lower tier in quality, I think. So I wonder how it would stack up to that. Because that one is enjoyable, but it has a lot of faults to it. I I want to see more horror westerns because I absolutely love westerns. Yeah, man. And I want to see more of that because I think it's such a cool, untapped environment yeah, that awesome a lot genre. of directors can do. So the good thing is it's on Shutter. So we've sang the praises of Shutter in almost every episode. But it's yes. there. You don't have to pay extra for this movie. There are so many worse movies that I've set through. I mean, this ain't no Veronica. You probably even paid for those, right? I did. I mean, well, yeah, some of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's not it's not terrible. I'm not going to give it a glowing endorsement, but it actually can it is pretty entertaining in parts and has some fun stuff in it. So, I'd say check it out if I wouldn't go hardcore like, "Oh, it's Friday night. I'm sitting down and watch Pale Door." <laughs> Maybe watch it before you watch Bone Tomahawk with the Burrowers. That way your expectations may not be quite as high for a horror yes, western. Yes. Oh, um, so if you haven't seen either of those two movies, dude, dude, watch those. Yeah. But but watch uh watch Pale Door first. <laughs> so it doesn't Yeah. Okay, All right. I'm good. Cool. All, All right. right. How about you, Dustin? What'd you watch? Well, I've been in this Japanese mindset since I've done all this insane research about pink films. I'm so shocked. I'm pretty sure you were in that mindset before you did the Constantly. research. Constantly. Yeah, I'm always in that mode, but uh, I needed a break, so I wanted to go with a different sort of Japanese film, and I went back to my much-beloved J-horror. Okay. Mm. And I decided to check back in with Takashi Shimizu and his recent film from 2019, Inunaki Village, or it's known as Howling Village in English. I haven't heard of this one. No, I haven't either. It's based on a famous creepypasta story from Japan. Hmm. Do you guys, you guys I don't know, know what creepypasta okay. is? I mean, I've had some they creepypasta are like... in my life, and I was... <laughs> shouldn't have eaten that, but okay. They're like uh, little scary stories that kind of circulate on the internet. Usually the writers are anonymous, and they kind of just proliferate. Like, you know Shirley Slenderman, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That began as one of those stories. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That actually puts some stuff that I found on Reddit in a little more mm-hmm. context that I've never known what it was. Yeah, there's, what is it, the No Sleep Reddit, I think. They mm-hmm. share a lot of stuff like that. And there's like a copy pasta too, mm-hmm. or something like That's that. That's where it gets its name, right? Mm-hmm. Creepypasta. It was kind of a promonto of copypasta. Gotcha. Um, okay. And in Japan, there's a whole line of these, and there's like a new generation of urban legends. And one of the really popular ones is Inunaki Village. And it's about this, it's supposed to be like a city from back in the past that had these troubles, and it's become forgotten. And there's all these little stipulations and specific things about it. I don't really want to spoil it, because half the fun is learning all of that as you watch it. But the film opens in this great, like, found footage style, and it's two people kind of doing, like, a ghost video about the legend. And then as it gets into it, it becomes more of a full film, and it's about this family that are sort of plagued by the existence of this village. And the main character is, um, it, it's very, you know, Juanish, where she's sort of sensitive to ghosts, and she realizes something's going on and starts to, like, research and dig up the truth and the mystery of what happened at this place and to kind of be able to, like, bring justice to a wrong that happened. That's pretty cool. I have a real blank spot for J-Horror, because I I was... When I first started really watching horror with Jason, Mm -hmm. he was always into J-Horror, but J-Horror scared the shit out of me. Oh, dude, yeah, it it really (laughs) sticks with you. Absolutely. absolutely. Like, I thought I was tough, and and a lot of people will listen to this and be like, you've watched some really heavy (laughs) stuff, but why can you not handle... Like, J-Horror. And I think I could now. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I was like, dude, I can't mess with J-Horror. Like, 
when what's her name Samara crawls out of the TV. No, Sadako in the ring version. I, it scared the shit out of me. Yeah, <laughs> like absolutely scared the shit out of it's me. Genuinely was, creepy. And I was like, I don't want to watch any more of this. <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember falling asleep while you and somebody else were watching One Missed Call, and like <laughs> I was coming in and out of it, and I was like, I. It was a surreal, horrifying <laughs> moment for me. So I've, I have a lot of, I have a huge blank spot for J-Horror. Yeah, they're great. And over here, there was a boom for a while with really getting those imported over heavily. And, and out there remade. For uh, less we say about that, the better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, it's still going on in Japan. There's great ones coming out. And this is this film in particular is very typical Shimizu. You've got the, you know, woman ghost with the long, dark hair. You've got very excellent sound design. There's some amazing moments where like this woman starts to scream and then there's like this low rumble that just kind of builds into this demonic yell that's like mirroring out hers Hmm. and it goes until it fills up all of the sound space and that's all you can hear and it drowns out everything. Interesting. I kind of want to watch it, but I feel like I want to watch it with you guys. <laughs> I don't want to watch it by myself in my house. With the lights on and your banky. Yeah. I got no, <laughs> hey, I got no issues, man. I will straight up tell you, I'm going to watch that movie with the lights on in my banky. Right. So if you, if you dig J-Horror, uh, Inunaki Village, it's a great one. Check awesome. it out. Nice. Jason, what do you got? Okay. Well, I got another classic, in quotation marks, slasher film from the 80s that okay. I missed back in the day. Uh, this one is called Body Count. Already cool. yeah, I've actually not seen this one. Okay, it's okay. from 1986. I know of it. It Deeply. is directed by the infamous Ruggiero Diodato. Ah, cool. Mm, who nice. we all know did Cannibal Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, it also has David Hess in it. Mm. Speaking of uh, Last House on the Left. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He I knew the name, but I couldn't yeah. place where I knew that name. Um, and the music some of which is pretty memorable and fun, is by Claudio Simonetti. Oh, cool. Of Goblin fame. Awesome. Nice. So, and those are three, you know, reasons to watch this movie right there. Unfortunately. No, don't just, do that. I know, I know. <laughs> it, How I can mean, you set that up and then. I know, that's what I thought. Yeah. I was like, oh my, because I, I didn't even know about Simonetti and I saw him in the credits. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, I must report that it is not very good. Oh, no. I'm not saying don't, I, if you have a few beers, <laughs> check it out, obviously, because it's a slasher film and there's some decent kills. Um, but it's about these kids. They go camping As in the should. woods yep, yep, on, yep, yep, mm-hmm. on a campground that may or may not be haunted by the spirit of a Native American shaman. Oh, that's a cool angle. It is. Underutilized. <clears throat> yes. Badly botched in this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's your typical, you know, you got the jock, you got the blonde, you got the doofus, you know. And they're all partying and hanging out. It's so jarring because one of their members uh, falls off a cliff and has to, and is in a coma and is sent to the hospital in town. Mm-hmm. Unrelated? Is it related? To it's that? related. Okay. <laughs> um, and his girlfriend, who was with him, is missing. And there's like one scene where they're talking to the cops, being like, "Oh, we got to find our friend. We got to search the woods." And they're like, "Oh, don't worry, she'll turn up." And they keep partying. <laughs> yeah, why not? I mean, why not? <sighs> But um, you know, what you do. It, yeah, it's it's not great. And the the version I saw it was streaming on Amazon Prime, and it was in four three. So I don't know if there's a Uh-oh. letterbox version out there or not. But uh, hopefully, you know. no animal torture in this, right? No, no. Good. I think Diodato learned his lesson after that one. That's good. Well, uh, yeah, like that kind of goes back to Dustin's original disclaimer for this episode that 
we're all pretty open to anything, but I straight up said from the beginning when I joined the movie club, I can't do animal torture. Yeah, that we'll, we'll try not, to avoid that one. That that's because so, that's that's not simulated like a lot of the no. horrible things that happen in movies. It's real, and that's not fun. Thankfully, when we got the reissue of Cannibal Holocaust back in the day, that came with a version that you could watch mm. it without those scenes. Right. Because I think it's a great movie to watch. It's hard. Watch, it's wor- it's but, worth watching. But you you should watch it. But yeah, it's real hard to justify watching it when you're when you have to see the right the animal right. So no no stuff, no so. no animal killings or torture in this one. Just only the audience is tortured. Oh. So you're, you're good to go. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yep. Well, listen. If you love this film, please write into us <laughs> and counterpoint Jason on this. There has to be someone out there that they just love this movie. I, I'm sure there is. I want to go check to out Simonetti's score for that though now. There's some nice parts. Yeah, is, it, is the score worthwhile at least? <sighs> some parts are a little phoned in, but like mm-hmm. the main theme is pretty cool. Cool. Okay. You guys can probably tell based on um, all the music interludes for this show that I'm a pretty big fan of Goblin. And let's take a moment to thank Michael for his musical contributions to our podcast. Yes, they are excellent. Thank you. All the songs you hear are composed by him. And I am happily ripping off Claudio Simonetti. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you're going to rip them off, rip off the master. Yeah, Claudio Simonetti and uh, John Carpenter, man. I'll rip them off all day. I don't <laughs> care. Well, I think that's just the synthwave genre, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the whole genre. Yeah. All right. So before we get into the film, I'm going to take us through a little primer. I'm going to break down what pink films are and walk us through a bit of the interesting history that it's had. All right. So first off, right out of the gate. Our main source for this episode is an excellent book called Behind the Pink Curtain, which was written by Jasper Sharp. And I actually know this guy. Do you really? Yeah. Well, not not personally. Uh, I've read other books that he's oh. worked on. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, well, this seems like a <laughs> shameless plug. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm um, picturing a bunch of photos of this author somewhere above his desk. With, oh, I know him. It, you know, he doesn't know me, but I'm full, uh, full delirium, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I wish I knew him. He's a very talented writer. But um, So, Jasper, if you hear this, that's something like an autograph. <laughs> but no, it, it's a great book that's very well-researched and very thorough about the entire pink films genre. And um, he also worked on the Midnight Eye Guide to New Japanese Film, which is sort of like a broader overview of general Japanese cinema from, like, the 60s or the 70s up to, like, the 2000s. Okay. So... He's an authority in the field is what you would say. Yes, absolutely. So when we say a pink film, what we're talking about, the most basic definition, it is an independently produced movie shot on 35mm film by a professional or semi-professional cast and crew, and the main lure of the film is in its sexual content. That is like baseline. I think we're pretty used to watching movies with a semi-professional crew. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe not so much a professional crew, semi-professional crew. So this is already, okay, I right. can relate. Okay. So, yeah, we know this. Okay. So to give us a little foundation of like these films and their makeup and why they even exist, you need to know a little bit about what's going on with censorship and regulation on adult content in Japanese media. And we'll get into that in a minute more. But just to give you a broad overview, even like back in the 40s and 50s, there was issues with even things like kissing scenes in films. Oh, okay. They had very strict laws about what was considered obscene that you could show or not show. Okay, quick interjection here. Do you think that's because of the American influence during the occupation? Absolutely. Okay, great. And we will touch on that. Oh, excellent. All right. I kind of felt like you softballed that. 
<laughs> no. You were like, I've got a question that Dustin could knock out of the park. <laughs> I, I, I should have waited. I should have. I should have held all questions until the end of the tour. Exactly. Yeah. I, I will do that from now Hold, on. Hold, please. I'll try to make this more interesting than just a straight lecture, but we will see. So. As a note, it wasn't until about the 80s that you could even have unsimulated sex depicted in their pornography. Oh, wow. Whoa. So that's some boring porn, I tell yeah, you. Yeah, run that through your mind for a little bit and actually think about that. That's pretty like, odd. Don't, don't run it through your mind too much. I mean, <laughs> too late. we got a podcast to do here, guys. Come and on now. So even now today, there's a lot of strict laws. Um, there's bans on even depicting like genitalia in pornographic content. It has to be blurred or pixeled out. I've read about that, yeah. Mm. So... Pink Films, or Pinku Ega, as it's called in Japanese, um, prior to that name, they were referred to as Aeroduction, which is a contraction of erotic and production. Okay. So very simple. You know, labels right there, an erotic production. That sounds like a uh, Roger Corbin type thing right there. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Aeroduction. You can see that splashed on the poster. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Filmed in Aeroduction. Um, some other names that people just kind of called these, uh, they referred to them as Sexy Films. Or 3 million yen films. How much is 3 million yen in American dollars? So the easy way to do it, of course, exchange rates are going to fluctuate all the time. Well, right. But if you say you can just take 100 yen and say that that equals a dollar. Okay. So, so basically one, chop off two zeros. One to 100 ratio. Okay. And you'll get the rough ballpark amount. Okay. Hmm. So while titillation may be the primary purpose of these films... For the creators behind them, other aspects like the performances, the story, or the technical qualities of the filmmaking were given a surprising amount of emphasis and focus. I could see that in the film we watched. Mm -hmm. Um, The average budget for a pink film is 3.5 million yen, which is about $35,000. Who? Wow. Even in the 60s, that was such a small amount. Yeah, that was... Yeah. Yeah. Well, that kind of tells me a few things about the movie we watched. (laughs) Definitely. Um, they've always had usually short uh, shooting times, and today most modern pink films tend to have a three to four day window. Oh God! To get all oh, their God. shots in. Yeah. I mean, if you want to compare that to American productions, um, so the film we're going to do next week was shot in twenty days. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. I mean, like to have even less than that that was considered yeah that's like, that's quick that was yeah. considered oh my god we have to do everything we can to get this right done, three, so. three to four days is like modern full moon oh tier yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and i say that in jest i do love full moon still that's okay they have their place um so pink films have always been a healthy part of the japanese film industry even though they've declined over the years the first year that they started being a thing in 1962 there were four titles released that eventually peaked in 1965 in one year 213 films were put out oh, wow. in this genre. Were those becoming popular primarily just in Japanese audiences? Or were they primarily, also... yeah. Okay, so they hadn't really been exported. No. Um, I'm sure some were, but it was never like the firestorm of like, hey, let's get these in. Gotcha. Let's start making our own. Well, these seem uniquely Japanese. Absolutely. I think so. Um, many do say the genre is on decline and dro- dropping out, but... Um, even in 2003, 89 of the 287 domestically produced films in Japan that screened would be counted as pink films. <laughs> wow. So it's actually very significant. a decent slice. Hmm. Um, a key element for the popularity of these is they had dedicated theaters whose sole purpose was to just screen pink films. Oh, cool. Kind of like grindhouse type Right, thing. and that's very similar to us in America. We had 42nd Street. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
which I don't know a lot about that. So maybe one day oh, we'll, we can we'll, walk down we'll that road. We'll definitely watch one of those types of movies soon. If you've ever, so if you've ever seen The Deuce on HBO, <laughs> I've wanted to, but it's I great haven't. show. Um, yeah, it's a lot about Forty Second Street. That's there. great. I don't think. Sometimes Jason's like, man, I wish I lived on 42nd Street. Not <laughs> lived. I would like to visit. I wouldn't want to live there. I don't think I want to go. <laughs> right, well, put a pin in that for another day. Um, many of these theaters have closed nowadays, but there are still some active pink theaters remaining, even today. Hmm. Do um, they have funny names? You know, I don't really know. Like, are they like called sexy theaters? <laughs> I am not too sure on that. I did not go in that direction. You can come to the sexy theater and watch sexy movies. <laughs> With sexy people. And so, <laughs> probably la- not less sexy little. In there. <laughs> it's guys like us. <laughs> right. Probably. Um, and so, the last little note before we get real deep on the history though it has been in a decline and a lot of different studios have dropped out of it, there are today five major players in the industry creating pink films. And there's our, those are OP Ega, Shintoho, Kokue, New Japan Images, and ENK. One of those I understood. <laughs> and I'm doing my best with the names. If I screw one up, that is my apologies. Yeah, we will massacre a lot of names, I'm sure. I'm disappointed. I mean, with the level that you put into this presentation, I would expect you to have been fluent in Japanese now, <laughs> Dustin. There's only so much time to do things. I mean, Duolingo it, man. Like, just... You know, I really need to. It's not bad. Okay. Plug for Duolingo. There you go. Awesome. Get into it. So... To dive into the history, this kind of kicks off post-World War II. A lot of the American influence of the occupation left them with different laws that kind of guided Mm. how things were. And one in particular was Article 175, the Obscenity Law. And that greatly influenced censorship and anything to do with sexual content and media going forward across the board. And it pretty much stated that anything that was considered obscene could be seen as an offense. Hmm. So... We can blame America for that. Yes, to a degree, yeah. I mean, I will still... This, this won't be the first time I'll rant about this <laughs> on, on this show, but yeah, censorship has no fucking place. And you know, culturally, to speak about it, in America, for us, it comes from the background of you know religion, Christianity, right, right. the very puritanical uh, morality that you know sexual content like that, there's a taboo about it. Sure. And for Japan, with a lot of the religions and cultures into the past that they've had, there's not so much of a moral declaration about those sorts of things. Right. So they have a much more open view about it until these laws come into place. Interesting. I'm not sure if you've prepared anything on this, but it'd be interesting to know what the response was of the Japanese people by this. Like, if you have never been censored in that way, to now have someone tell you, oh, you can't do that. Like, were pink films almost like a response to that? I wish I had an answer for you, but I'm not sure. They certainly took off in popularity, so that says something okay. about well, them. Well, that poses a question. That's an interesting um, thought. This book, the Behind the Pink Curtain, is huge and exhaustive, and there's no way we can fit it into a whole episode. So I did the best I could to kind of trim us enough well, that's to fine. get so long. That's fine, Professor. so slowly the idea of eroticism as a theme in films began creeping up more and more in cinema for the 40s and the 50s any nudity at all was considered off the table but later into the 50s that began to shift as some directors kind of pushed the envelope a little and just like you know it's like over here you put something in it's like what are you going to do are you going to censor are you going to block me what and then the import of foreign films 
Like one notable one was Ingmar Bergman's Summer with Monica. Oh, okay. That kind of introduced these themes and concepts to them. Like, oh, there could be a movie like this. And it be, you know, entertaining and meaningful. We can kind of skirt the censorship issues and, mm-hmm. like, put the stuff in it we want to. So pink films were truly born in the 60s. And it started in 1962 with Satoru Kobayashi's Flesh Market. <laughs> wow. Yeah, great name. I don't even have a joke for that. <laughs> that's just that's what it is, Flesh so, Market. with a lot of these early independent productions, it's hard to get stats on them, but there are numbers for this. It was made for 8 million yen... And it took in over a hundred million. Wow. Well, by that accounts, like Hollywood would have made twenty of them by right. now. <laughs> That's like the Blair Witch situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have the flesh market extended universe already. Uh, they probably already do, <laughs> but not in this. Not from this film. I oh, think that's a different flesh market. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, not the same production companies. So it was mostly an independent affair, but as it went, major studios started to notice and pay attention to these. You've got, you know, all the things they love: low budget low turnaround, very high profits. Uh, Notably, Seijun Suzuki, who's an excellent director, I love him, he created Gate of Flesh in 1964, and that's often considered the first sort of mainstream attempt to encapsulate, you know, the use of nudity and sexual content like a pink film. Hmm. Have you seen that one? I have, and it's very excellent. Okay, cool. Suzuki's a great director, and we'll definitely get to him at some point down the road. Okay. Um... So major studios fully started getting into the game in the 70s, and it really kicked off with Nikatsu, who created their Roman porno series, and Toei with their Pinky Violence series. Now what's Roman porno? Okay, so I'll guide you through both of these. The Roman in the title (laughs) refers to novels. It's pulled out of the Latin. Oh. So I think the intention is it's supposed to be sort of like a, you know, literary feel to it, like as if these are special or fancy or somehow. So like Bridgerton. (laughs) <laughs> like I don't know right? about that. <laughs> the veneer of uh, credibility, yes. Yeah. Sure, yeah. But but lots of lots of banging. Um effectively <laughs> is what these were were just pink films with much larger budgets thrown behind them. Better cast, productions, everything. Right. Bridgerton. Um Nikatsu gave their directors a large scale of freedom in whatever they made as long as they hit certain requirements that they had. The most notable being that there was a minimum quota of four neuter sex scenes per hour of film that they made. <laughs> Okay, that's a good ratio, I guess. (laughs) And the thing was, if you checked these boxes, they didn't really care what you did Mm. or what the film was about or what it said or any of the themes it had. Okay. So the level of freedom that you could get in a studio environment is off the charts. Right. I mean, that is pretty notable, though, Mm -hmm. that they'd leave you alone, let you make your movie so long as you put this in it. Right. They they said, you know, this is the formula. This is what gets the profits. You do this, you're golden. Do what you want. I can imagine that leading to some pretty funny gratuity though <laughs> yes you know like you're actually trying to tell a serious story mm-hmm. but to get the to get it made you're under the guise of a pink film so you're trying to tell like a good story and all of a sudden you're like oh what what oh we're at, <laughs> we're at 59 minutes throw a boop right you <laughs> yeah know, how like, do you get that in there yeah that's and then they're like well they'll leave us alone now we can finish our story so some famous films in this series and there's hundreds of them out there um apartment wife affair in the afternoon very saucy name and that actually spawned 20 sequels. Wow. Oh, which is hard to imagine. It's like James Bond. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> or Fla- Puppet Master. <laughs> <laughs> They're not quite to 20 yet. They'll get there, though. And uh, Flower and Snake, which spawned a whole series of S&M-focused pink films. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And you'll notice that throughout the genre, that there'll be one film that kind of goes on a certain topic, and then many more start to like emulate and go along with that. So Toei's Pinky Violence series 
that focused on trying to blend elements of crime and action films with the pink film content. They often featured strong female leads that were seeking revenge for past injustices. So some of the famous films of these are Delinquent Girl Boss and Female Prisoner Scorpion. That was called Delinquent Girl Boss? Yeah. That's awesome, because, I mean, how many times do I see hashtag girl boss now on Twitter? Is, I don't think they're the same things, though, right? No. 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 Okay, cool, cool. Um, but, you know, Scorpion is very popular. You know, Quentin Tarantino's referenced that a lot. That's what I was yeah. trying to think of, the Scorpion thing. Yeah. Yes. Okay. There's several sequels of that. It's a great series. I, I love all the films in that. And, you know, it was a few episodes ago I talked about Zero Woman, Red Handcuffs. Mm-hmm. That is also in this style. I imagine it would be. If you're starting to get into this genre, I think they're the most approachable because you have that um, skeleton of a crime film or an action film to go in. Right. um, And it gives you a bit more structure than just kind of throwing you in the deep end. Hmm. So these, quote, studio pink films stole the market away from the smaller independent studios, and that continued till about the middle of the 80s. In the 80s, we saw the rise of home media, as we all know. VHS, Betamax, all of that. And that enabled them to have the uh, adult video market, where they just call AV in Japan, kind of steal away a lot of the pink film market. So basically getting like your straight-to-video mm-hmm. type stuff to away, like what we had, what yeah, we like, had in the 80s. Right. Um, in the book, Sharp makes a note that by technical definition, none of these studio efforts or the later direct-to-video V-Cinema erotic films would count as a pink film due to their production not being independent, the bigger budgets and all of that. But they're often considered as such by fans, and they get regarded together in discussions. So it's fine to just sort of lump those in. Okay. And a little side path on this. The whole rise of the adult video market in the 80s is its own crazy story. (laughs) Obviously, there was a lot of censorship laws that had to change there. And there's actually a Japanese drama on Netflix called The Naked Director. And that tells the sort of, you know, sort of fantasized, sort of true biographical story of a very famous AV director, Toru Muranishi, and his efforts to kind of like revolutionize the industry. And a lot of his efforts are what got some of these censorship laws changed. Interesting. The Larry Flint. Kind of, yeah. The the Japanese Larry Flint. Jason, don't Mm. sneer at me. (laughs) Don't (laughs) sneer at me. I have a feeling that might be an unfair comparison, but, you know, let's let's continue. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, if you're curious about that, check out Netflix. Get into that. That's a different path from us right now. So as early as 1982, AV already held an equal market share to theatrically released pink films. In 1984, there were new government censorship policies rolled out, and an agreement was made with the Japanese film rating board known as Aaron. And due to this, various pink film companies found it harder and harder to get their productions out like they wanted. Um, The very month they dropped these new rulings... The profits of pink films dropped 36% across oh. the board. Uh-oh. What was going on in the world? Like, what was going on in Japan that pushed that? So in the 80s in Japan, they had this bubble economy. Suddenly, everyone was affluent. And well, we had that in the 80s a little bit here, too. Well, I, and yeah. I mean, that's a whole other podcast. but Right. Uh, but there, it was even more affluent. The bubble economy was huge, and everyone was, like, spending money wildly. And that's really how these direct-to-video things took off, because there was so much money being funneled everywhere. Okay. Trying to get more content and more stuff out. Um, so the Japanese rating board continued to plague this genre in 1988 by announcing even stricter requirements on sex-related films that were going to be released theatrically. 
So they continued to kind of choke hold. And it seemed like their focus was a thing against showing them in theaters. That was the problem. So I want to clarify for my own clarification. Sure. <laughs> Allow myself to introduce myself. <laughs> are these actual government laws or are these like rules within like like the of, Hayes Code that were self-imposed? Right, right. Rules, are the, right? Or are these actually like the Japanese government passed these laws that specifically apply to these types of films? I believe it's very specific and focused. That's so strange to me cuz like I'm I'm trying to well I shouldn't say strange. I'm sure our government would probably, if they could, sit down and be like, well, you actually can't show this now. Well, I mean, they've tried in the past with video games and That's stuff true. like that in That's the 90s. True. Yeah. That's true. Um, so amid all of this pressure, Nikatsu retired their Roman porno line that same year with its last film, Bed Partner. Okay. And a little overview on the 80s. There were three dominant directors during this time. Genji Nakamura, Banmei Takahashi, and Mamoru Watanabe. And collectively, they were referred to as the Three Pillars of Pink. That's a pretty awesome title. Each of these <laughs> decades going forward, there's some important people, and they all get a cool like title attached to them. But these guys, um, they all started in the 60s, but they truly came into prominence in the 80s. And this was that time when these films were having a lot of trouble and problems, but they were known for kind of elevating the pink film above its origins. And they put a huge focus on the technical finesse and the narrative content of their movies. So much so that to a point, some of the critics called their actual films they made pink art. Hmm. As if it was its own separate subgenre. Okay. And just a little note, uh, notably Nakamura, he directed one of the first widely distributed and well-received films with a focus on homosexuality. Okay, interesting. Pioneer. Mm -hmm. I think still is an issue in Japan, though. Is that correct like from what i understand it's, it's still an issue here well <laughs> i mean of course it is but i mean at least here right you know right, it's right. Oh, like it's okay to be out sure you mm -hmm. know i'm from certain things that i understand in japan it's not always right mm -hmm. i wish i had a you know direct answer to give you on that i'm not 100 percent. i do know it's laxed more in recent years okay um so at the end of the 80s the av industry has become the primary form of adult cinematic entertainment in japan and the pink film seems to be on the decline and as we roll into the 90s, we hit an all-time low. Nikatsu had to file for bankruptcy in 1993. And they are still around today, but that was a huge blow. And I know it kind of took them out of the game for a long time. Um, Poor one out, guys. Yep. <laughs> Sad times. So during this time, pink films carried on mostly in the independent scene. For a lot of creatives and directors, the pink film was seen as the last refuge if you wanted to be an auteur director and really have full control of your movie. Because that idea still remained. As long as you hit the number of sex scenes, you were free to do whatever you wanted. You could explore any theme, any idea, any sort of artistic concept you had in your mind. Interesting. And so in the 90s, we had four critical directors. Kazuhiro Sano, Toshiki Sato, Takahisa Zeze, and Hisayasu Sato, who were referred to as the Four Heavenly Kings of Pink. Nice. I mean, that's a bit higher of a title than yep. the Three Pillars of Pink. but And so with them, knowing that we're in this decline of this genre, they worked under the assumption that each film they made could be their very last one. And because of that, they ignored the idea of even trying to please the audience hmm. and put their full focus on experimenting. Interesting. Many of these directors even broke one of the fundamental pink rules by cutting down on the sex scenes to make more space and time for other content or ideas. How dare they? Radical. 
How mm. dare they? Um, to critics of the time, these films were considered difficult, often dark in theme, complex, and generally they were unpopular with older pink audiences that had grown up through each successive uh, generation. This ain't your grandpa's porno now, okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> we're moving into artistic directions. So that brings us to the 2000s and up to today. What's going on now? The independents still definitely carry the torch. There's a new prominent group of pink filmmakers, and there's seven this time, so I'm not going to rattle them off, but they are known as the seven lucky gods of pink. Great and they're titles. seen as the ones that are carrying that torch. We need cool names like that for groups of directors yeah. here. Like, yeah. I mean, like, you get mumble gore mm-hmm. directors. That's not really as cool as, like... gore core. Well, there's both. Yeah, mumble it's gore. Mumble gore is, like, um... Oh, Jeremy Saulnier was in, mm-hmm. considered in that one. Uh, Ty West, all the all the VHS people. AJ Bowen, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I have that. never heard the term mumble gore in my life. Yes, yeah, so there was the mumble core genre. I know that. Right, and mm-hmm. then mumble gore was applying those techniques to horror films. You don't pay attention to anything we say, do you? Because Dustin and I have said that many times. I thought you were saying mumble core. Just, wait, this wait, is wait, the wait. first time I've heard gore. <laughs> you just don't listen to me. You never uh, listen to me. Maybe I need to get my hearing checked. I don't know. So real quick before we finish this history, Jason, what are pink films? I don't know. <laughs> I can answer this. I think I was probably the least prepared to answer this. Okay. But a pink film is any film that operates as an independent, that is not produced by, or that's not like has money flowing in from a major studio. Um, it has to meet a certain quota of nude scenes per hour um and it typically focuses on more um maybe erotic mm-hmm. side and shot on 35 shot on 35 Boom. okay okay so in the 2000s that's at least a b plus you you pass man yeah you <laughs> c's uh. passing for me i got my diploma with a c so through the 2000s we had stuff like the pink grand prix becoming more popular this started in 89 but it's become this yearly event where they sort of give out awards for pink films and screen a lot of the top ones. Hmm. Uh, 2008, Pink Aga Incorporated was formed, and their intent was to release pink films on DVD and streaming overseas. Is that where you got some of yours? Yeah, the, the really cool. That's why, uh, made, that's why that name sounds familiar. The really cool mm-hmm. stickers I brought you guys. They threw those in. I ordered a little bit from them to check them out. Uh, they do only release stuff on DVD, but they do have a lot of streaming. The streaming's a little weird. It looks like they dabble in having AV stuff on there, too. So okay. waters are a little murky there. But if you're into this stuff and you want to find it somewhere, that's one place to look. Uh, 2016, Nakatsu hops back in the game on Pink Films. They decided to do a limited series revival of their Roman porno line by tapping famous directors to create them. And they reached out to people even like Hideo Nakata of Ringu fame. And my personal favorite... I was waiting for it. Shion Sona. I was waiting yep. for it. Uh, each director was given the exact same budget, one week time to shoot, told they had to go no longer than 70 minutes, and they had to hit that ratio of nudity or sex scenes. Wait, is this the movie we watched? Was that considered a pink film, the Shion Sono? No. It's, uh, his is called Anti-Porno. Oh. It's really, really good. Um, and this release, these films, marked the 45th anniversary of the Roman porno line. I mean, the natural landmark there why not yeah and so to today we've got boutique companies like third window films that have started restoring some of these very notable pink films over the years and re-releasing them um the one we watched today third window was the one responsible for getting that back out again cool Cool. and there's also impulse pictures which is an offshoot i believe of synapse films and they have a nakatsu collection where they're just licensing and releasing a lot of these old ruined porno films so 
I kind of want to, before we jump into the movie, I think it's easy for us as Americans to look at this genre and be, I don't want to say weirded out, but I think it's easy to be put off by it Mm -hmm. because it's very foreign to us, not just in language, but it's a foreign idea. Mm -hmm. But we had this in the States. Right. Like, we've kind of always had this. Like, you've had your exploitation films. Um, you know, you've had your sexploitation films. Even into the 90s, I, I thought of, like, uh, when HBO and stuff like that came to rise, you had all those erotic thrillers. Yeah, the stuff that would play, you know, yep. that you would, like, stay up and try to watch. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. Justin and I would. Jason was I don't too know old for what that. you're talking about. Everybody did it. Like, you'd, you'd stay up and be like, oh, there's going to be a skin flick on, you sure. know, and you'd yeah. try to sneak a skin flick. And they're, and they're not... When you think of standards, they're not pornographic. No, it's it's soft core stuff. It's very soft core, and you would almost just sometimes call it erotica. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I think I want to say that about this genre because it's not. I think there's merit here, and we wouldn't bring it to the table if we didn't think there was cinematic merit to it. It's not right. smut. Absolutely, by and any means. In the book, Sharp kind of gets into that a little bit. It, he kind of raises that question of like you know. A lot of people look at these and they're just going to say, well, that's pornography and write it off. Not at all. Um, and I actually like this quote. I pulled it just to read. Um, at its best, the genre represents a vital hotbed of creative energy, seemingly unfettered by minuscule budgets and grueling shooting schedules. While mainstream reviewers tend to ignore them, for movie buffs willing to explore the lower depths of film culture, one can find the ending indie scene represented at its most fiercely independent. This is, seems to me like a a way for well this is probably a good segue right into us talking about the film if you're ready for that we yep. can segue but let's let's get into it okay this is a way for art house directors to make whatever the hell they want to make as long as you follow a quick little rule you know as long as you hit the nude scene quota you could make whatever you wanted to make and say what you wanted to say in your film and not have a major studio tell you that's not what we'll put out. Yeah, it's probably the only way a lot of these people even got a movie made. Yeah, I mean, look at the way it is in the United States right now. There's so many great scripts sitting around that just can't get made because a, produ- a production company is going to say, no, you're going to do this exactly the way we want to. Mm-hmm. So think about if we had something like that in the States where – you could somebody might fund you that's not a major production company because they know you'll get played. Yeah. They know this will screen. It's an easy return on investment. Exactly. So And actually there were a lot of films. There's a notable one called Gushing Prayer, and a lot of its themes was political commentary and criticism of the time. And it was the sort of thing that no studio would dare let them put out. Sure. But because it was this independent production, they were able to you know say everything that they wanted. Well, let's jump into this week's movie now that we've had our primer. All right. So I hope that was educational. Hope it wasn't too dry. Let's get into it. Inflatable Sex Doll of the Wastelands. One of the best titles ever. Amazing title. That I kind of, I want to see this as like some stoner bands like <laughs> yeah. album title. Right, you could totally right. see that. So it was an independent production. So this is a quote, true pink film. Came out 1967, directed and written by Atsushi Yamatoya, who has a lot of writing credits on pink films and even some major studio stuff. Cool. A quick question. Yamatoya is his surname, correct? Yes. Okay. Yep. 
we we're we're speaking in English, so I figured I would just keep it. Sure. No, I get that. Just, you never know which way. Authenticity is just right it. out the damn window here, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should always localize stuff to the language <laughs> it's in. So just top level a synopsis. And this is what I pulled from the internet, and I actually have a quibble with it, but I'll get into that. Yeah, well, good fucking luck getting the synopsis of this movie, so. A private detective is hired to find a woman who has apparently been murdered in a snuff film. It turns out the woman's not dead, but very much alive, and he gets sucked into a torrid affair that leaves him questioning his sense of reality. Oh, well, that's kind of a... It's a little misleading. A very broad statement, and I'm not sure that's what I got out of the movie. Now, is this guy a private detective? I my thought first he was thing. a hitman. Yeah, that was my vibe. But everywhere you look, if you see a synopsis, they say private detective. He definitely has that Norish private detective look to him. Right. But are, oh, wait, no. are you sure? Because this dude wears the most bitchin' shirt <laughs> that has no back. Right. And it's sleeveless, but he's wearing a fucking tie in the front, man. Yeah. Because how many... Are you going to see... Um, oh... Mickey Spillane? Yeah, you're gonna see you're gonna see sleeveless there, huh? No, right. this dude is. I don't know. <laughs> this dude's a hitman. Only hitmen. Only hitmen are brave enough not to wear shirts and everything. And you know, yeah. You know what the funniest thing is? There's another film that I love, um, Mamoru Oshii's The Red Spectacles from the '80s, and the guy in that you has said spectacles, right? Red spectacles, okay, spectacles. Okay. And the guy in that has the same like backless dress shirt, and I always thought it was the weirdest thing. And we watched this movie, I was like, "Holy shit, Oshi is referencing this movie." Or maybe that's a thing. I've only ever seen it in these two films. We're gonna have to dive deeper and find into like, um, oh, Japanese clothing exposure podcast, where we find <laughs> out like what kind of uh, dress shirts were the time. No, we're just going to inspire hipsters to start dressing like this, so maybe it's a good idea to stop I, talking no, about it. No, I have it. no problems with that. <laughs> right, so if you know about uh, backless dress shirts, maybe write in, let us know. Are these a thing? Do they exist? Can we get one? I, I would I'd think about like an outdoor wedding. Mm-hmm. You and you have to wear a suit. You have to wear a shirt and tie. <laughs> You'd wear a backless dress shirt. Jason, quit shaking your damn head. <laughs> quit shaking your head. Okay, so show he's maybe a private detective, probably a hitman. I, I read him as a hitman. He even mm. says he's a hitman, doesn't yeah. he? I think so, yeah. I think he refers to himself as a hitman. So he shows up in this very strange, pretty much the titular wasteland of the film title, this very deserty, abandoned area. No he, inflatable sex dolls yet, though. Not yet, no. And he meets with Naka, who's a real estate investor who wants to hire him for a job. And right away, out of the gate, what really struck me was the visual style of everything. There's so much interesting camera work going on in the way they've staged and framed the shots in the film. It's hitting way above its budget. Mm -hmm. And immediately, it just, like, bleeds art house sensibilities, I thought. Yeah, it's very surrealistic. Mm -hmm. Um, And immediately, we kind of get a sense of Sho's character, because he wants a... uh, Naka wants a test to kind of prove his abilities... And he just, you know, blows away this tree, dual-wielding guns. In true, that was true manga fashion right yeah. there. Like, you could totally see. Completely over the top. Yeah. And I think he even did it with, like, 38 revolvers. Yeah. So, like, not even, like, a high-powered gun. <laughs> he, but he's got two of them, man. And that tree stands no chance. <laughs> and the first thing you kind of get about him is that he has this just thing about shooting and guns. He's very obsessed with firearms. I mm-hmm. mean, America should love it. sorry (laughs) whoa but uh naka wants to hire him for a job 
And the job appears to be that this gang abducted Naka's girlfriend and subjected her to this sort of like snuff film that they made. And now he wants revenge on them for what they've done. Seems pretty straightforward. So far. Yeah. And you know, the other thing I really ought to mention before we go too deep is the score of this film. I know it hit you guys a little weird, but I thought it was incredible. Just this crazy, over-the-top, chaotic jazz. Yeah. It's just out of control. (laughs) Yeah. It fits the movie. Mm. It does, because the movie has this whole kind of beat attitude toward it. It's very noir. Yeah. Very very noir crime film. I can actually insert a quote here from Jason while we were watching the film. (laughs) Um, And this is a direct quote from Jason. Man, I don't hate a lot of things, but I fucking hate jazz. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm the odd man out on that one, I guess. So um, when he shows this video to him, you even get a better sense of show's character because he kind of just disregards what he's seen. The first comment he makes is, well, you can't see anything. It's not good. Right. Was it just me? I kind of took that as almost... Because the man showing it to him... Uh, Naka. It? Naka. He's he's very into it. It's almost like he's enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And but the in, what I got out of that was when Show was watching it and made that comment, I almost felt like there was literally nothing on the film. Mm-hmm. Like it was just you know, nothing was recorded, it was just unexposed film. Oh, ba- that's interesting. And based on where it's go, I can definitely s- or based on where the story goes, I can see Okay. It that so way. that wasn't just me. Mm-hmm. I it, I mean, I wasn't there with you. But we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. okay. All right. Um, so then, as it progresses, we meet a few other characters. We meet the um, abducted and murdered girl's father, who has a weird obsession with this inflatable sex doll. He sure does. God, that was weird. And we learn that in this city, there's a place that manufactures these. And it's kind of just a little throwaway thing that we get, you know, tossed out to us. So it makes a damn good title. Oh, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> and so... You know, they hire Show for the job, and he kind of sets out to find this gang and get retribution. And we get a little bit more about him in that in the past, he had a girlfriend who was murdered. And he has this sort of grudge rivalry against the guy who did it. Right. It kind of implies that maybe they were friends before, and his name is Ko. And seemingly, Ko is also behind this incident as well. He's the knife guy, right? Yeah, he uses a knife at one point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You- but he's the guy who throws knives? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of see, like, they have similar traits, and they're very mirrored, that they both have this kind of, I would say, disregard for women, almost. Yes. There's a very, like, streak that you could say in this film of, like, misogyny, but to me, I think it's pointing you at that to kind of question it and study them as yeah, characters. Yeah, I don't think that it's, I, I don't think at all that it's, like encouraging misogyny. I think it's meant to put that under a microscope and you're like, these guys suck. Like these guys are not good people. So uh, yeah, I don't think it's at all encouraging misogyny. I think it's a critique of it. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's emblematic of the way movies treat women, especially back in the sixties. I think it is actual a criticism of society at the time. Yeah. Which is pretty crazy for the time for the year this is released, because Mm -hmm. if you look at American film, misogyny is running crazy. Oh yeah. You know, like women are for a couple things only and that's it. And (laughs) yeah, I mean, honestly, it's not even been till recently that, that the U S Mm-hmm. has started seeing like, hey, maybe we should not be so goddamn misogynistic about things. <laughs> and so this is a note I actually put down right after we watched the film because I didn't want to forget it. The inflatable doll of the film is definitely a metaphor to a degree. 
And to me, like just one tagline on this, it's men who love guns and treat women as objects. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of what the film is presenting, I think. Absolutely. I should probably keep my mouth shut on my American counterpart on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so he starts this investigation to track these guys down and bring them to justice. And we quickly become lost, I would say, in the story at this point <laughs> by intention. Sure. We start to see things kind of out of order. We're seeing like his memories of the past and what happened with Ko. Mm-hmm. We're seeing him like talk to different people. He's being stalked by some who are trying to see what he's doing. He has this obsession with 3 p.m., which is implied that that's the time that his girlfriend died. Right? And the time he's going to kill Ko. Mm-hmm. Ko, yes. And get his revenge. And then there's the whole unreliable narrator thing, too. Because mm-hmm. I don't know if we can really trust what, you know, Sho was saying or even doing at times. And to me, in that moment, it almost started to blend, like, is he really doing this job for Naka? Or is it just, like, a thing that he has invented for himself? It gets very vague, and the two, like, stories of Naka's abducted girlfriend and what happened to show they kind of bleed together, almost, I felt like. Right. I think I needed this podcast during the film. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to give you a direct Michael quote from while watching the film. Uh Hey, guys, do any of you all know what's going on? (laughs) They respond with, yeah. I respond with shit. <laughs> and then I tried to like, you know, smooth it over for you. I was like, well, it's very art house though. <laughs> that was your excuse when I didn't understand it. Like I also am aware that I'm a little bit ADHD for this movie, but also <laughs> when I realized that I'm not in the same room as the rest of you all, I'm like, this is going to be an interesting podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, it's very artsy. It's deliberately surreal and I, I think uh, several times I brought up Lynch while watching it. Yeah. I, I would be shocked if Lynch has not seen this movie early in his career. We should ask him. We should. <laughs> Let's get him, call him up. Find his agent. If only. <laughs> Have you seen Inflatable <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, the part with the father and the inflatable doll, that was very Lynchian because it's kind of off camera at yeah. first. It's like one of those yeah. weird little horror inserts Lynch mm-hmm. likes to put into his movies. And it's just like very disturbing and awkward. Mm-hmm. So... Eventually, Sho gets mixed up with this sort of femme fatale, Mina. Right. She stalks him earlier through the city, and then she kind of shows up at his hotel room. She comes on very strong to him at first, but he wants nothing to do with her. He's more interested in his gun yes. than he is in her. And that's not a metaphor. Until <laughs> no, the real gun. he puts the gun in the mix. And that's where this gun fetishism thing really sort of comes into focus. Right. Yeah. I do want to clarify, though. It's all very tame. Yes. The, when we say gun fetishism, it's tame. Mm-hmm. It's very... Right. They're talking about the gun, like touching the gun, but it's not like, yeah, right. It doesn't mm-hmm. get it, this isn't explicit like, or yeah. anything. No. In general, this one's kind of on the tamer side, I think, of pink films. Right, yeah. Um, I appreciate that. A lot of the sexual stuff has kind of been displaced for the art film stuff. Right. To a degree. I appreciate that, because when you first told us what we were going to watch, I was a little nervous. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I really want to watch that in a room full of dudes. That's cool. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and a, and a thought that I had while you were, um, kind of given the rundown of pink films, um, 50 shades of gray is much worse than this. Yeah. <laughs> like something that, sure. I, that is not a genre film that audiences went in drove to see that movie mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and read the books. Right. Those right. are pretty explicit. They don't necessarily go for what they show, but it's what they imply. Mm-hmm. So if you're at all think you might be afraid of these films because of what they might be, what 
stipulation or like what stigma, sorry, yeah. stigma is the word I'm thinking of, mm-hmm. that you might put on that, I'd throw that out the window because you've seen a lot worse. And I think that we're putting a, a very heavy handed label on this kind of film. Mm-hmm. Because even when we get into the quote unquote sex scenes of these films, they're it's very, very tame. Mostly just people rubbing their faces on each other. <laughs> like, <laughs> More is implied than shown. Exactly. Right. I yeah. mean, it's very, it's almost, well, it's artistically done. You know, maybe, maybe that's why I never had a lot of luck with women because I didn't know how to properly rub my face on somebody. <laughs> well, um, but, now, now you know. You or seen uh, how to do it. or uh, drag the revolver across them, right? Yeah. I, <laughs> women love that, by I the way. Literally. Um, Oh man, just wait till our significant others listen to this episode. <laughs> hey, Tiffany watched it with us. She thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> she understood it more than I did. <laughs> so, um, during their moment of making love, though, a very notable thing happens. While he's distracted, Mina reaches over and empties the bullets from his revolver. Right. Symbolically castrating him. Mm-hmm. That's a very good note to make. Mm. See, you're right. You're right on the thread, following through. Right, right. Gotcha. Yeah, I didn't get that. <laughs> oh, Michael. And this is the podcast where everyone learns how much of a dumbass I am. <laughs> if they didn't already. They're like, no, 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 we knew. We knew from episode one. It's cool. So later from this, he's preparing to set out, continue his um, pursuit of Ko. The door breaks in, and there's this amazing moment where like, he gets jumped by Ko and his men, and it just kind of freeze frames. Everything stops completely. It's frozen. It was bullet time before bullet time. Yeah, and he just lifts his revolver and blows all the men away. But it's not even, it's not like a, actual still they don't it's not a freeze frame it's right. the, 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 they freeze the actors are actually yeah. just standing still and it's very cool for yeah. lack of a better it word it does work yeah it, it really does work you can tell they're just standing still but it works it's mm-hmm. neat yeah it's very striking and so he kills his men in abducts show and then we get even further into the weeds of what's going on at this point mm-hmm. he starts to talk about all the times he's fantasized he's waited to kill him he says, you know, I've killed you hundreds of times in my mind running over this. And we get these incredible shots of the wasteland again. One in particular, there's Ko buried up to his neck in the wastes. And Sho's just kind of standing above him. And nearby, there's this big broken clock right on 3 p.m. Right. Yeah. And it gets very surreal, very avant-garde. It's almost style. like they really have done this hundreds of times before. Mm-hmm. Oh, wasn't that? There's a... Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and as it continues on, he, you know, eventually has to pursue and find this girl, mm-hmm. figure out what happened to her. And that's where you start to wonder, like, at first you're told she's dead, but then maybe she's not dead. Maybe they still have her. Um, maybe she doesn't even exist. Yes. <laughs> and there's a very big confrontation between Sho and Ko in the bar that Ko kind of hangs out in. And that was another of my favorite scenes because they frame it where... The camera's sort of resting on the bar top, Mm. and you just see as he goes deeper in the room to discuss with him, and they start to scuffle, and as they're fighting, the bar gets bumped, and the camera just kind of tilts ajar out of focus, and they leave it that way for the rest of the scene, and it slowly resets as they're wrapping up. Right. It's almost like you were there. It's very immersive. Yeah, it was. That bar is like a super small version of the Continental from um, <laughs> John Wick movies. Oh, like where right. everyone in it. All the hitmen just hang out. Yeah. <laughs> Only they were conducting business on company grounds. <laughs> right. So in the end, in this in this mess that we're in, he eventually finds uh, Sae, 
the woman that was uh, taken and supposedly killed. And she seems very, very out of it when he rescues her. Mm-hmm. She doesn't speak much, and he's infatuated with her at this point. I believe it's the implication is that she reminds him of his former love. Right. That right. is one thing I actually got. Oh, okay. yeah. Very yeah, good. Yeah, very right. good. Yep, yep, yep. I got that one. Good nice. Job. And so he, you know, takes her, brings her back, rescues her, and things get even weirder. <laughs> the second he brings her back, the father just starts to treat her like she's one of the inflatable dolls. Right. Which, you know, sets him off. It's a little awkward. Yeah, yeah very awkward. <laughs> and I think, again, that's getting to that idea of the misogyny in this film. Right. Even the women that are, you know, physically there in person, they're being disregarded. Yeah, they're just objects. The same way. Oh, yeah. So he ends up in this factory with Sae, and he decides that he's going to make love to her. Mm-hmm. And we get another one of these great, like, almost horror moments. As he kind of climbs up over top of her, there's just this crack. And when the camera cuts to the next scene, she's this gigantic, horrific-looking, like, wooden doll. Yeah. We smash back. We're in that hotel room again. It's the scene where they've come in to ambush him. And as it plays out, they actually got the drop on him. Right. He went to shoot with his gun. The bullets aren't there. We know Mina removed them. He gets struck with a knife, and they kind of abduct him and have their way... And seemingly murder him. Yep. I kind of don't remember some of that. <laughs> <laughs> and but, so... No, on, no, please don't. No, please continue. On. I was just going to say, doesn't it... Uh, but the very end... Are we about to get to the end? Oh, well, let me talk about this spot sure, just please, real quick. Please do. So, really what you can surmise from that is a lot of what you've seen in these weird disjoined parts of the narrative and things blending and mixing... To me, I took it like that was kind of sort of like a death dream almost. Yeah, I think I even made mentioned the occurrence in Owl Creek Bridge when we were yes. watching it. Ambrose Spears' short story. I get story. that. I get, mm. and I got that when we were watching it. Yeah. I, but I, but it felt like I needed you to say that. <laughs> and it was just, it's just this jumble of all his memories, his desire for revenge, the things that have happened to him, mm-hmm. what he wished could have happened, what has happened, all just bleeding into this chaos. Where are my sleeves? Where's the back of my shirt? <laughs> <laughs> but then, yeah, Jason, this final moment of the film, right? So we go back to the Wastelands. Mm-hmm. It's almost the same shot we opened on. Yep. There's a new guy there. Naka's there. And it seems like they're setting up the exact same situation again. Yes. Now, what I was confused about, because I'd read some reviews of this, and some people say that it's show again at the end. Hmm. But wasn't that a different character? It wasn't show, was it? It was a different character, but I just had a thought, literally, while we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Like, what do we also consider, if we look at this from a Western civilization point of view, uh, a lot of times purgatory I had that thought is as well. pictured yeah. this way, especially in Western films. You have, like, a wasteland that mm-hmm. nothing really grows there. It seems to be like a purgatory for people who've done bad things, right? Mm. And, like, if you put it in a Western form like that, as a, like, I'm pretty sure there's a Western with a town called Purgatory. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what it is. It's like a collection of bad people who've done bad things, mm-hmm. and now you're going to pay your penance. That reminds me of our uh, sorcerer episode. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. And so it's kind Ooh. of this lock of reliving this you know terrible situation. Hmm. Um, and we get a little stinger too, where Naka explains that this town that they're in is known for the inflatable sex dolls that they make at the factory. And there's this very unnerving scene where it's kind of panning through. Maybe a hotel, maybe it's supposed to be a brothel, but each room has a woman in it. Mm-hmm. 
And some of them you see, and it's an actress portraying a woman that's just laying there very still. But then some are inflatable dolls. Right. Kind of completing that metaphor that they've been carrying through the film. Hmm. You know what my biggest critique of this movie is? What's that? I saw zero scenes with Grammy Award winning singer Pink. (laughs) (laughs) It's a weird... I I think you misunderstood the genre. It's a weird hero to die And I think that... I think that might have framed the way I saw some things. The fact that it was made in 1967 should have tipped you off, but, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm not the smartest person in the room here. (laughs) It's clear. And so, before we talk about air thoughts, I thought I would close out with Behind the Pink Curtain and read you guys what uh, Sharp had to say about this movie. Tell us what Jasper said. So, he had to say that this film shows the versatility of the pink film genre and suggests that it's probably the most idiosyncratic work in the genre that was ever produced. He says at times it outdoes Suzuki's branded to kill in the terms of its dreamlike illogicality. And we'll talk about branded to kill in a second, because that's a weird connection to this film. That's worth talking about. Um, regarding the plot, he said, as with the Suzuki film, there's clearly some method behind the on-screen madness, even if it is occluded in what you're seeing. Hmm. He said, consider the striking high contrast monochrome in the cinematography the quirky, hard-boiled performances, the hypnotic disjunction between sound and image, the use of montage to construct a surreal, alien-looking landscape that bears little resemblance to any recognizable vision of Japan, and the atonal jazz soundtrack full of chaotic fanfares that blare out to punctuate all of the action. Ain't that the truth? Yeah, I'm pretty sure some cats just jumped on a piano at one point. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good summation. Mm-hmm. That's a very succinct I did want to ask you where, like... I've never seen any part of Japan that looked like this, and I was kind of wondering, like, where is this? Well, definitely the city shots could be in Tokyo yeah, or any yeah. major city. But the the wasteland. You know, I'm really not too sure, but it had a definite style to it. I mean, I'm not going to say that that doesn't exist in Japan because there's, I'm sure it's there, but mm-hmm. it's not what's pictured of Japan. It's not what you ever are shown mm-hmm. what it looks like. And it makes a very stark contrast throughout the film every time you go back to it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I was reminded watching this of uh, the movie Versus, Ryuhei Kitamura's film. Yeah, I love oh, that yeah. film. Okay. He, I, I feel like he maybe had seen this too and was maybe inspired I to make that. I would say that a lot of filmmakers probably grew up on this because this, for I think for Japanese audiences and maybe younger Japanese directors like growing up in that time, this mm. is probably the same kind of like what what would be called bottom of the barrel B movies for <laughs> us here. Right, but are very influential, but and they're not. It's just kind of what everybody else shits on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like well, that's not worthy of your time because right. that's not high art. Yeah. But there's a lot to be said in a lot of films that are not considered high art. Absolutely. And let me chain this in now. So, Branded to Kill, which was referenced there, that was a film by Seijun Suzuki. That's a straight up noir crime thriller, and it was written by Yamatoya. And he helped heavily working with them to kind of construct the narrative. And it does a lot of these same themes that you see in this film, as far as like telling stuff out of order, going very surreal. And it's a very interesting companion piece. It seems like in Branded to Kill that he kind of like worked on some of these ideas with Suzuki and then left to his own devices. He pushed it even further into this film. Interesting. So if you do check this out at some time and you like its style, Branded to Kill is another one to look at. Cool. Okay, so before we give our reviews and our thoughts on it, Dustin, where do you get it? All right. So if you want to see this movie, 
It was restored by Third Window Films, and it's out on an excellent Blu-ray called The Pink Film Collection, Volume 1 and 2. It's a double bill. The other film, I think, is Gushing Prayer, which was that political commentary one that I mentioned. Okay. So you can pick that up. It, the disc is region-free, so... Gotta have a region-free No player. worries. It's also streaming on, I believe it's pronounced Mubi, or is it Mubi? M-U-B-I? Oh, I believe Mubi, and they're a newer streaming service, and it looks like they're doing a whole little pink film series, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Yeah. So it may not be as hard to get as you initially think. Mm-hmm. So if this is your jam, that's that's where you can find them. Or you're curious. If you're curious about this genre at all, this is a good like dip in the pool, unless art films are like a problem for you. Because I've had friends that like they're just like, I don't get this kind of stuff. Sure, yeah. Well, let me say this. I don't think I understood this movie very much, <laughs> but I'm not upset that I watched it. Mm-hmm. I and and I think that's a key thing to our movie club is that it is okay, heaven forbid, to watch something that you might not actually like. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because someone else found something of value in that. We should try to be good friends, good people, good followers of the arts to sit through something that maybe we don't particularly enjoy yeah give it a shot to find out how we can discuss that amongst each other Mm -hmm. and that's what we're doing here and i think for me it even when i've hated something it's rare for me to not find something that i thought was you know interesting or worthwhile about something that i've watched maybe not veronica we'll we'll see i'll get to it eventually (laughs) i didn't hate it i know (laughs) all right michael you're the outlier on this Final I thoughts. I can't rate it. Can't rate it. I can't really? rate it. You can't give it a star rating. Because I don't think that's fair to mm. give it a star rating. Because mm. I don't think I understood it enough to give it a star rating. Mm. What I understood, maybe a two. Okay. But I don't think it's fair that I learned more about this movie through talking through it with you guys than I did while watching it. So... I don't know. Maybe that's an interesting topic to think of that maybe we... That's one of the reasons we do this, right? We talk through it. Yeah, Yeah, that's why I love doing this. Right. So as far as like engagement in the movie, Mm -hmm. I sat there more of like, what the hell? (laughs) Through most of it than I was genuinely interested in watching it. It was more of like, I don't know what I'm watching kind of a thing. Right. But you guys seem to get it, so I figured I'd... You know, do what everybody else does. <laughs> Not along. Watch, watch the smart people in the room. Mm, and, interesting. Yeah. Yes, that sure. is Lynchian. Yes. Mm. <laughs> but like casually insert. Like, do you guys know what's going on? <laughs> uh oh, they do. <laughs> but that being said, I'm not upset that I watched this. I don't think this is my genre. Absolutely. I don't think this is something that I really sure. want to go more into that mm-hmm. much. Maybe right. the political commentary one. That sounds kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um. But I think that's okay. Yeah. I think there's plenty of other things that I can draw from. It's always good to try things, and if you don't dig it, you don't have to go any further down yeah. that road. Right. It's it's very clear, and I appreciate your passion on it, though. Right. I am obsessed with Japan. I love everything, the culture, the history, the films, anime, everything. And I, so for me, getting into these, it's been like a whole new avenue that I've been able to learn and explore. Yeah, I don't think you've watched anything non-Pink in a while. <laughs> <laughs> you've even started listening to Pink music. Ooh, I won't go there. Okay. <laughs> nice. All right, Jason, what did you think? Um, overall, I did like it. Um, I would, I would recommend it with caveats. Like you said, Michael, if you're really not into the whole art house scene yeah you know if you don't mm-hmm. dig that kind of 
and it uses the, it uses jazz for the score, and jazz is also a good way to describe this movie. That's a fair it, statement. It's very disjointed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fair statement. Yeah, it's but it's very well made, and it's cool. There's some very cool shots and cool dialogue. There's a thing you often say about films sometimes where they're a tone poem. Yeah. And I think that applies here. This is definitely a tone poem all the way. Um, I would give it three stars personally. Mm-hmm. Um because I did like it, I did enjoy it. I think, if anything, it was a bit, hmm, almost too artsy for its own good. You said it was can... very beat, and you said it, <laughs> you said it in like that very, um, like, oh, those crazy kids, and they're beating it. <laughs> if only they just get jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, I am a hep cat, and I know all about the beat generation. I can dig it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I could follow you. Um, but no, I I think if you're going to start watching pink films or dive into it, I think this is an excellent place to start because mm-hmm. it's it's not too confrontational, you know. It's <laughs> it's not too uh, exploitative, and it, and it it's interesting. I'll give it that. That's for sure. Nice, Dustin. I I have a feeling you love this movie. Listen, I love this movie. Huh? I all I can do is think about it since I've watched it. And I've wow. ran it over a ton of times. I almost rewatched it again, but I couldn't squeeze it in before we recorded this. Mm. That being said, I would give this four stars out of five. Okay. And I have a different take on this. I know you not you guys haven't seen Branded to Kill, but Branded to Kill is sort of like the stronger, more put together version of this movie. Okay. And I appreciate Inflatable Sex Doll, The Wastelands, because it's so unrestrained and chaotic. But Branded to Kill is just one of those like perfect five star films. And they're so close in a lot of their ideas and especially their techniques that having seen Branded to Kill, that sort of casts this in a different light. Why the hell didn't you bring that one? <laughs> it's not a pink film. But it yeah. sounds cool. Yeah. Well, if you like this one, go watch Branded to Kill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Nice. All right. And, you know, to wrap up, definitely if you dig the idea of pink films at all, you want to learn more, you want to dive into this, go pick up Behind the Pink Curtain. We're not sponsored. I don't even think this book is like actively being promoted anywhere, but it is like essential for pink films. You can also just hop on any of our social media and just like at Dustin (laughs) and you guys can talk for days and days and days. I will rant forever excitedly with you. And I will (laughs) jump in and make some jackassy statement at some point. (laughs) Well, thank you guys so much for indulging me on this and letting me kind of guide you through everything and to give this little history lesson. I hope it was educational. Hope it wasn't too dry. Your passion comes through. I, I learned so. I learned a lot. I may have learned too much, but Good. yes, Good. it was very educational. That's how I want to leave you. I've learned too much. <laughs> I've seen too much. I've seen beyond. Well, we're going to take a different tone next time. Yeah, what are we doing next week? Uh, next week's my pick. Um, so I gave you Hong Kong action film first, mm-hmm. then I gave you uh, crazy live special effects second, and this time let's go just soul crushing. Um I will be showing a dark song, ah, uh, which I believe 2017. 2016, I think. 2016. It's got that A24-ish style, right? Yeah, very much so. I'm not prepared with the director's name, so we'll go with that later. But um, you can, if you want to watch this before it comes out, or before we air this, or before um, you see it pop up on whatever your podcasting gatherer Yes, your favorite one of choice. <laughs> yeah. You're being too technical, Michael. Dumb it down. People <laughs> like, aren't going to know what you're talking if you, about. If you flip open your jitterbug <laughs> and you find... The, <laughs> um, we did rent this on Prime. Uh, 
I think that's really the only place. Yeah, I couldn't find it streaming anywhere for free. It used to be Netflix. When I saw it the first time, it was streaming on Netflix. Um, Mm. So, yeah, I think we're going to take a different tone next week and explore maybe a little bit more emotional side of things. Cool. Awesome. Looking forward to it. And hopefully there's a distinct lack of jazz in the soundtrack. Very much lack of jazz. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, Not, not so much jazz. Oh, and you know, by the way, Inflatable sex doll of the wastelands. I've got the blue. No, there you go. I mean, you knew he had it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you probably started drinking like I did uh, midway through the history lessons. <laughs> yeah, that's the case. It's cool. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining us. As always, please uh, connect with us on whatever your favorite social media platform is. I do believe it's live on all of them. Yep, right? we're live on everything. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, if you want us on something else beyond that, uh, I don't know. Cats only. You can always uh, email us at genreexposure at gmail.com. Yeah, you can talk to us any way you want. So Please do. Yep. All right. Thanks, guys, again. We'll see you next time. Take it easy. Bye. Bye. Bye.